Given its dark history, Berlin might seem like an odd place for the son of Jewish refugees to make a second home. There is this anarchic spirit. The city's bankrupt. You never know how it works, but somehow you just love it. Playwright Peter Wurtzman joins us in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves to explain how the spirit of Berlin acts like a magnet for people from all around the world. Also today, we'll explore Europe's current economic hurdles from a German perspective at the top of the European Union. When we want to bring up all the nations on the same level, the very posh ones might have to step down a little bit. And when you wander the back roads of Scotland, look for who's hosting a Cayley get-together to get a real taste of the local traditions. The remote areas of Scotland, they didn't get to see each other very often, so when they got together, it was a real knees-up, as we would say. Lots of whiskey, dancing. German politics, the spirit of Berlin, and small-town adventures in Scotland. It's all coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. In Europe, do the people who contribute the most come out on top when it comes to government policies in the European Union? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll explore issues in the EU from a German perspective and see what issues hard-working Germans are raising as they help to bail out many of the weaker economies farther south. We'll also meet an American playwright who calls Berlin his second home. We'll find out how the son of Jewish refugees can turn a scene of Hitler's horrors into a place he gladly calls home. Let's start out exploring the magic you'll find when you slow down on the back roads of Scotland with tour guide Anne Doig. We're at 877-333-7425, and you can join us by email at radio at ricksteves.com. And when a traveler comes to Scotland, of course we're going to see Edinburgh, and then we should side trip over to see Glasgow, which is really, uh, there's a lot of buzz about seeing Glasgow as a cultural center. Those are the two big cities. Otherwise, you've got the Highlands and the Lowlands. Yes. What are the differences between the Highlands and the Lowlands? What do we mean by that? Well, the Highlands, Americans, when they think about Scotland or people from overseas, they immediately think about the bagpipes and the kilt and all that culture, and that actually came from the Highlands. It's been adopted by the whole of Scotland now. Mm -hmm. But there's a, a boundary line that divides the highlands from the lowlands socially, politically, and geologically. And once you're north of that, you're in the highlands. A lot of us know about the dramatic charms of the highlands and Isle of Skye and these lonely mountains and so on. The, yeah, yeah. Glencoe and so on. But frankly, I've always just driven right through the, the lowlands. Uh, tell us about the charms in the lowlands of Scotland. Well, the Delonans is another area, the borders, uh, which are south of Edinburgh and Glasgow, the border region, and that's very much ignored by visitors, mm -hmm. particularly Dumfries and Galloway down in the southwest. And there's lovely scenery there, and there's lovely coastal walks, and there's very cute little villages as well. So you've got Kirkudbury. Hadrian's Wall defining mm -hmm. the north of England, basically, mm -hmm. and then between Hadrian's Wall and Edinburgh, mm -hmm. almost everybody just makes a beeline for Edinburgh because... Edinburgh is so exciting. Yes. What would be a great attraction of this area? Well, the border abbeys, if you're interested in architecture and history, the king's built abbeys along the border area which have been torn down. Mm -hmm. There's lots of really good walks, named walks like St Cuthbert's Way, etc., and coastal walks in Dumfries and Galloway, and of course Hadrian's Wall, it's not far if you're interested in, in Roman Britain. I've heard of Dufftown. Tell us oh, yes. about Dufftown. <laughs> D-U-F-F-T-O-W-N. I know it sounds pretty ugly, but my mother was born there and my grandfather built the roads and there's seven distilleries there and it's not often visited except if you're a, a whiskey connoisseur and then it's on what's called the Whiskey Trail. And we went there on Christmas Day and I thought, nobody ever comes here and I picked up some leaflets and it was really interesting. They have a very vibrant local culture in that they do have Cayleys. A Cayley is a gathering, a, a gossip, a music get-together where visitors are welcome um, every week in the summer month. So now where exactly is Dufftown? It's in Murray, up in the northeast. It's right in the centre of the whiskey area. So it's several hours north of Edinburgh. Yes. Could oh, you call yes. it the whiskey capital of Scotland? You could. And I was interested because they boast in their leaflets that they pay more tax per head of population than anyone else in Britain because of the whiskey. Glen Fiddich's there, Glen Grant, all the famous whiskey distilleries. And that must stoke the spirit for the Cayleys yes. in the evening. <laughs> yes. Now tell us about a Cayley. Well, Achilles are get-together. The remote areas of Scotland, they didn't get to see each other very often, so when they got together, they, it was a real knees-up, as we would say. A knees-up. Lot, <laughs> lots of whiskey, dancing, poetry reading, singing sometimes. Anyone that's got an instrument. Conversation, singing, dancing, dancing drinking. exactly. Yeah, get-together. And get uh, together. a tourist could actually be part of one of these. And, well, and you uh, could, yes. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now we're traveling through Scotland with Scottish guide Anne Doig. And our phone number is 877-333-7425. Mark's on the phone from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mark, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, do you have a thought on traveling in the back roads of Scotland? One of the places I really enjoyed was uh, getting up into the outer uh, islands, the uh, uh, Hebrides. Beautiful area up there. You get really on the remote side. Uh, you can totally get away from any other tourist and pretty much anybody at all in <laughs> some of those places. Yeah. Can you get too far away from anything? I mean, sometimes do you figure, oh, I'm way out here and there's nothing going on? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite, it's no, quite no, nice. I, one of the things I really enjoyed uh, was, uh, for example, I went to Lewis and Harris. I was particularly looking for a, uh, a Harris tweed jacket, right? Ah. And I thought, well, go to the source, right? <laughs> so uh, I was kind of surprised that the most common thing was the crossing businesses all throughout there. People would run their, do their own Harris Tweed in their backyard, in essence. So you have cottage industries of people producing this, this fabric, and then... And yes, then actually... it has, to have the, the Harris Tweed, it has to have been woven in a croft. And what then it's sort of, they've got a, 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 a loom in their loom. own house? <laughs> yes. So this is actually handmade by, yes. by a... But not the jacket. They send that often away to Stornoway. Right. In, but the, the actual material used to be they made everything in the cottages, but the fabric must be woven in the cottage. So, Mark, did you actually see this craft-made uh, fabric? Oh, definitely. And, in fact, I found the people so warm and friendly because as you're driving along, you'll see the people advertising, you know, the craft, and they make the, uh, the fabric there, and they invite you in and give you a tour of the whole facility. These are the remote islands off the northwest coast of Scotland, is that right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Nice. The Outer Hebrides are called... Mark, I think that's, uh, that's good advice. We're all going to head out to the Outer Hebrides now. Thanks for your call. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Appreciate Take it. care. Bye now. Bye-bye. Gerald in Portland emails us, and he writes, uh, My wife and I will be in Inverness for a week, and we'll be flying into Heathrow in London and have a week to drive to Inverness. What don't miss off the beaten path places should we visit on the way to Inverness? Well, that's a long drive from London all the way to Inverness, which is, what, four hours north of Edinburgh. If you're making a beeline for Scotland, you would hit the freeway and just stay in the motorway all the way to Hadrian's Wall. Let's assume Gerald's going to do that. What would we want to stop at after Hadrian's Wall before getting to Inverness, Anne? Well, I would stop at the border abbeys. Maybe center yourself at Melrose. There are ruined border abbeys. Walter Scott Country, he was an important figure in our history. His house, you could visit his medieval fake castle, Abbotsford, and then head up towards... Edinburgh, St Andrews, I wouldn't miss Edinburgh, and side visit to St Andrews. It's a beautiful medieval city, golf, and that's where... Now, St Andrews is famous for golf, golf of course, but uh-huh, it, it's a medieval town as well. Absolutely, yes. And then uh, for the golf aficionados, are you able to actually golf there? Yes, yes, the old course. If you want to play the old course, you have to put your name in the lottery, but there are six other golf courses, so you'll get a game, or you can always putt on the Himalayas. There's a putting course called so, the Himalayas. So a casual golfer could stop in St. Andrews yeah. and actually have an experience. Yes, oh, definitely. You might not get in the old course because it's right. very popular, right. but there's a wide variety of different challenging golf courses. Well, that would be fun. And then you would pass through Pitlockery, which I think is a great stop. What are the highlights of Pitlockery? Well, Pitlockery's got an excellent theatre. It's got a great golf course, too. You have to have one leg shorter than the other. It's on the side of a hill. Huh. Great treks around Pitlochry. Nice little shops, bed and breakfast and things. It's a good stop. David's on the phone in Knoxville, Tennessee. David, thanks for your call. Hello, how are you? Doing well. Do you have some comment or question for Anne? Uh, yes. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to visit Fountains Abbey, which is in York, and I was really taken with the place. And then later I had the opportunity to go to Lindisfarne. My question is I'm interested in other monastic ruins, preferably off the beaten track, preferably places that time has forgotten, that I might be able to continue my exploration on my next trip to northern England. I'm not sure that Scotland has much in the way of monastic ruins. There's something very important I'd like to get Anne's take on. You've got Holy Island. That's uh, in northern England, yes. and that's got a great history. And Iona, Iona, yes. uh, off of the Isle of Mull. Well, Iona is a little windswept island off the coast of Mull, and it was where Christianity was really spread throughout Scotland. The Book of Kells was written there. I wouldn't say that it's off the beaten track, because it's one of the number one places that people want to visit. If you go there, it's best to go early in the morning or stay overnight when all the crowds have gone. There's a spirituality in the air. There's yeah. something magical about yeah. Iona. Mm. 
And then you also have this very dramatic story of, what was it, a Viking raid that slaughtered a lot of the monks martyrs and, being, and yeah. a lot of martyrs, and they took the Book of Kells back to Ireland. Because and, of the Vikings, yeah. It's just there's something thrilling about Iona, and to be there overnight, be there yeah. early or be there late or That's spend the think, night, yes. then it gets magic. Because during the day, it, it is sort of inundated with a lot of visitors. Yes, but you know, once the people have gone, you feel the magic. It's amazing. The magic there is, it sounds kind of almost hokey, but I'll tell you, anybody who's never felt magic can feel the magic on Iona. Iona, yes. Wow. And we also mentioned for David Holy Island, and now that's in northern England, near the great castle at Berwick. Mm. It's mm. actually a tidal island, and there's a, when you approach it, the signs will tell you when the tide is low enough so you can drive over. And you get there and you find this incredible monastic settlement. Again, this is one of these toeholds of Christianity, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Yes, that's very well worth a visit. St. Cuthbert. St. Cuthbert, yeah, who actually came from Scotland, but he was a, a very important saint in the very early period. And I guess when we're talking early period, we're talking between the fall of Rome, about 500, and, 500. and, the, and the dawn of the uh, high Middle Ages, 1000. So this is what a lot of people consider the Dark Ages. But there was lots going on in culture and religion and literacy in the monasteries. Absolutely, yes. Holy Island's one. David, I hope that gives you some ideas for your um, quest on your next trip. A uh, trip to Iona sounds wonderful. Great. Thanks so much for your call and happy travels. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Anne Doig about the wonders of Scotland off the beaten path. To me, Anne, Scotland has this sort of rough and windy and ancient sort of mystique and power. And when you take a walk in the remote corners, whether you're on one of the islands way down in the Hebrides or, or way up in a, in a lonely valley in, in the highlands or in a ruined old abbey, you get the sense of this. Let's close our talk with just one image that you would have if you were taking me around Scotland to, to really feel the majesty of this culture. One image. Well, if you're walking, I love Scotland. <laughs> and for me, it's a very powerful place. There's a feeling of spirituality, of ancient tragedies and heroes, and it just does inspire you with a feeling of ancient spirituality, I feel. What's the Glen at Glencoe? Glencoe, the Glen of Weeping. There was a big massacre there, and you can really feel it. You do feel it. And yes. if you're with a local person, it's like it happened last year. Last year, yes. But it would have happened centuries ago. About 1692, yes. So the, the history is very immediate. Very potent, yes. And, and, uh, you can feel it, yes. You I can think feel you can it. feel it, yes. Well, I hope that all of our listeners, when they go to Scotland, can feel the history and the proud culture of Scotland. And, Doig, thanks for helping us better understand you. your beautiful country. <laughs> thanks very much. We head for Germany next to consider the European economic crisis from that country's perspective. And then we'll learn how American playwright and author Peter Wurzman fell in love with the ever-evolving city of Berlin. We're at 877-333-RICK. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. News of economic hardship can play out differently in your local media depending on which side of the Atlantic you call home or on how serious the banking crisis is in your country. As the largest and perhaps most economically stable partner in the European Union, Germany plays a major role in directing European policy in some of its neighboring countries whose economies need help from their bigger siblings. 
To help us understand some of the concerns these issues raise for the average German, we're joined right now by a friend of mine who's intimately involved in local and regional politics from his home on the Rhine River in Bacharach. That's where he works on regional environmental issues and also leads walking tours of his hometown. Thomas Gunflock joins us now for a German perspective on the news and to share his hopes and fears for Germany and the EU. Thomas, thanks for being here. Yeah. Thomas, when you think about uh, the economic crisis in Europe, there's a lot of unemployment, even in Germany now. How does Germany uh, see the economic crisis when it looks at Europe as a whole and then how Germany is doing as an individual country? Um, in general, the people on the streets are very afraid of uh, what is going on. Everybody is afraid of losing uh, the bank savings and so on, especially as you see that the banks were more or less uh, creating the crisis. And so the people um, blame it on institutions and are very afraid of the entire uh, development. So Germans are actually seriously concerned about the health of their own banks. Especially, especially really? because our banks have uh, given loans and credits to other countries. So if it doesn't work with the bailout system in the so European Union... So Greece and these other yeah, countries, and we, especially if bigger yeah. economies like Italy and Spain have to be Crash. bailed out, it yeah. could bring Germany down with them. Exactly. And, and exactly. Germans are actually concerned about this. This is interesting. They are, and uh, especially about the savings then and what happens. Okay, the government so, gave a guarantee for this, but that is difficult. Germany does have an interesting history when it comes to yeah. monetary policy and inflation. Yeah. In fact, Joseph from Rockville, Maryland, emailed us, and he writes that the Germans place an enormous emphasis on stemming inflation, often at the expense of stimulating the economy to reduce unemployment. What prompted this fear of inflation, and why does it persist today at the German Central Bank? Does that make sense, that question to you? It makes sense. And there is a historic reason why Germany is afraid yeah. of inflation. Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah. The reason for that is simply the two world wars and the experiences uh, the generation of our parents, grandparents and grand-grandparents made in these years afterwards. All were more or less starving, didn't have money. We had to exchange goods, silk stockings, cigarettes and coffee were the currency after World War II. No one wants to have this situation again brought upon by high inflation in 1945 after the war. Uh, you could buy a slice of bread for maybe a hundred Deutsche Reichsmark. Uh -huh. uh, a day later, it cost you a thousand or ten thousand Reichsmark already. So people were trading like uh, in the medieval times, exchanging so goods. So everybody went to the barter system because they, yeah. the money became worthless. Yeah, And exactly. this was actually after World War II. Yeah. And of course, students of history remember uh, after World War I, what, 1923 or something, yeah. I think uh, Germany lost World War I. The, the treaty required Germany to pay reparations. Yeah. If I understand it correctly, Germany says, okay, we'll pay it. How much money do you want? And France and America say, how much money? And Germany says, we just print out that money. Yeah. And when you print that money, you pay your bill, but you make your money worthless. People, when they got paid in 1923, yeah. they went straight to spend it. Spend it. Because Otherwise, tomorrow yeah. it's worth half of what it was today. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. Uh, you had this famous image of a wheelbarrow full of money. In fact, I've got right. paper money that says one million yeah. Deutschmarks. One yeah. million Deutschmarks, which is worth maybe one yeah, dollar today or, yeah. or, or less. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Thomas Gunflach. And Thomas is a guide from the Rhine Valley in Germany. Uh, we're talking about the economic situation in Germany. You know, when you think about Europe and you think about Germany... Germany sort of defines a work ethic. Germany is so efficient. People work hard. Of course, you play hard also. But do you have the sense when you're a German that the Germans are having a strong economy because they work harder? Or, or why is Germany doing better than Italy or, or Spain? Um, it's not as easy like that. Uh, it's not as easy. Of course, the Germans themselves have an attitude towards work, working hard, long days, but they also see um, that their system, which they built up over the last 40, 50 years, is also contributing to the performance of the entire country. Let me give you an example. In uh, the crisis now, two years ago, companies uh, wanted to lay off people and so on. But there's a, um, a system which uh, helps the companies and uh, the industries in order to stick to the old employees. Uh, we call it Kurzarbeitergeld. And, uh, so be loyal to your employees? Yeah, and the government is co-financing the wage for a certain time. Therefore, the uh, companies don't have to make the people redundant, which has got the overall um, advantage afterwards that they can rely on old experienced stuff once the economy jump starts okay. again. So when economy is in trouble, people might be laying off workers just to survive. The government comes in 
and subsidizes the wages so the little companies can keep, can them. keep people yeah. because the government yeah. thinks that the economy yeah. will pick up and then the yeah. efficiency will be there. That exactly. sounds very uh, pragmatic, very, yeah. very practical. These companies don't have to spend money on uh, recruiting. But afterwards. where did that money come from higher taxes? Uh, no, the money comes actually from the contributions people have to pay into the social security system, oh, okay. so the unemployment insurance. Ah, it's, a, it's a dimension of unemployment yeah. to subsidize people yeah. to keep them employed exactly. so they don't have to pay unemployment. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So why so, pay unemployment when you can pay the unemployment yeah. before they're unemployed exactly. so they stay employed? It's a win-win situation for what both sides. What a radical concept. Yeah. I never thought about yeah. that. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're getting some ideas from Germany, talking to a good friend from the Rhine Valley, Thomas Gundlach. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Jason's on the line in Austin, Texas. Jason, thanks for your call. Thanks for having me on. Do you have a comment for uh, Thomas about the German economy? Uh, yeah, my question was basically which way he sees uh, the EU as a whole going. So it seems like there's somewhat of a disconnect. Uh, between the monetary policy of the EU as a whole in the euro and the fiscal policy of some of the individual countries that's sort of uh, impacting the euro in some negative ways. So Greece, for instance, has, you know, some fiscal problems which impacts the value of the euro. And it seems like, from what I understand, that the way to fix that is maybe have a tighter integration with the fiscal policy of the EU as a whole that would help in terms of the the euro not being impacted by some of the spending that goes on in, say, mm -hmm. Greece or Italy or Spain. Does he see it getting more integrated or maybe potentially going the other direction and the individual uh, countries kind of break off from the EU? I just didn't know if he had a thought about that or which way Germany uh, would like to see that go. So, Jason, are you basically saying would it be wiser in, in Thomas's uh, assessment if uh – the European Union required more fiscal responsibility from individual countries? Right, or had more control over that that would keep it from negatively impacting the euro as like the problems in Greece have seemed to have done lately. Thomas. Yeah, the fiscal control of the, within the European Union is highly discussed for many years already. You will find countries, whether they are part of the monetary union or not, uh, who really don't like to give up the national sovereignty and budget sovereignty. So sovereignty, that's yeah. a big issue. That you, is you a can, big issue. You can talk about a European yeah. Union, but it, yeah. it, it requires countries giving up sovereignty. Yeah, especially uh, budget uh, sovereignty, which finances everything. And uh, if you give this up, you're more or less, uh, yeah. Um, You've lost your sovereignty. Yeah. So, Jason, you're, you're proposing that the EU needs to be more integrated. And I, I think what Thomas is saying is people are, are not inclined to give up real sovereignty for that integration. And maybe there's the impasse. Right. That's that's what it seems like from the outside looking in. And, and it just seems like it has to eventually go one way or the other. They have to be more right. integrated to prevent those problems or they have to kind of go their own way and it becomes totally separate again. I think they're going to be at a crossroads here pretty soon. Thanks, Jason. Thank you very much, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, take care. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Thomas Guntlach about the EU and the challenges of the economic crisis. Thomas, you're a German, and you've spent a lot of money to bail out the Greeks. Uh, how do you feel about that? Um, most Germans feel quite bad about it, I really have to admit. Um, how much money a, do you think personally you've spent to help the Greeks? Personally, uh, uh, difficult. Is it thousands of uh, it is, euros? That's what the media... Um, so each German has spent uh, literally thousands, thousands of euros to help yeah. bail out the Greeks. And the Greeks are in the bind they're in because they're um, inefficient, they're corrupt, they're cheating on their taxes, they're taking a vacation when they should be working. I mean, <laughs> if I was a German, that's kind of what I'd say. Uh, that is what um, some part of the media is saying, but uh, that is dangerous, and uh, we should actually in Europe not argue like this. Uh -huh. uh, you read the tabloid media um, in Germany and in Greece. They are blaming us for being too nationalistic, if not worse. Really? Uh, the Germans are taking heat? Yeah, and we Germans, we blame the other way around. We blame the Greeks for, as you mentioned, it being uh, maybe a little bit too relaxed. In a way, the euro is sort of the Deutschmark in disguise, <laughs> you know. And, I mean, you Germans have been trying to take over Europe forever. And now you've got the euro everywhere. And what you've done is you've forced the less productive countries to have a, your currency. And in the old days, 
the way you could crank up and crank down the pay that a country gets is by devaluing or upvaluing its currency. Yeah, but yeah. now Portugal, Greece, Italy, they're all tied to the euro, which means they're kind of tied to the Deutschmark. So they're getting a bigger, a German kind of reward when maybe they don't deserve it. Now, that's my very, I'm not an economist, but what do you think when I say that? The Germans have a problem with this uh, in general. I don't know whether the euro is uh, the Deutschmark in disguise. It um, looks like uh, it. We know that we have to take over more responsibility in Europe and economically uh, we cannot deny that it is actually reality and therefore it plays also a role when we are talking about the dependency of other uh, nations on uh, the well-being of uh, our economy, of course. Your economy is so good in part because you're working with other European economies. Sure. Therefore, sure. if you're so well off, it's because yeah. you've been partnered with Spain. Yeah, sure. So you need uh, to help Spain when they help you. It's, yeah. There's the rationale for Germany bailing yeah. out these southern countries. That is a big thing. Um, many Germans still think that uh, we are simply the net payer. Yeah. Yeah? And, uh, of <laughs> course, we pay a lot and uh, we, we might pay the most into the pot, but we also get most out of we it. benefit yeah. the most, yeah. Over 60% of the German export stays within the European Union, and that is a big thing. Over 60% yeah. of German exports stay within the European Union? Yeah. Yeah. I just was crossing the Gulf of Corinth, and I saw this beautiful bridge in Greece. It's a bridge like I would expect to see in Dusseldorf. <laughs> and I realized that bridge connecting two pieces of land in Greece was paid for by European Union money. Yeah, like that in many means, countries. That means yeah. Germans paid for it. Of course, we're in, into this too. So basically, yeah, yeah. you're just buying a bridge yeah. so you can get your gummy bears yeah. down to the Peloponnesian yeah. Peninsula. For many Europeans, especially in Germany, um, England, France, it's a situation uh, the politicians haven't talked about anymore in the last years. Such projects need to be financed in order to build a common Europe with all the benefits which we have, 65 years and more of peace. Mm -hmm. um, the people forgot that when we want to bring up all the nations on the same level, the very posh ones might have to step down a little bit. Um, oh, yeah. We are paying and financing for projects, of course, our industry is benefiting from this too because we might be building the bridge. Yeah, our German That's companies right. might build the bridge down yeah. there. But um, in general, that is what solidarity is all about in Europe. We did that in the United States when people yeah. in the wealthier states helped pay for the freeways yeah. in the poor states. Yeah. So everybody has a quality yeah. autobahn system. Yeah. We also in post-war Germany, we know the situation very well because that was the way we got a second chance, more or less, in order to rebuild oh, our country. Marshall Plan. Term. So Marshall you saw plan. the value of the Marshall yeah, Plan. Yeah, You've given yeah, the Marshall Plan yeah. to Eastern Germany. Yeah, yeah we gave. And you uh, gave the Marshall Plan now to Greece. Yeah, Same and, philosophy. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been learning about uh, the European economic system from a German point of view with our friend Thomas Guntlach. Thomas, I'd like to finish when we're considering all this economic stuff in the European Union and so on by acknowledging the fact that the big triumph economically is no more world wars in Europe. You know, Europe just recently got the Nobel Peace Prize, yep. uh, the European Union. You know, you can argue and debate all the pros and cons of the European Union, but would you, would you acknowledge that the great accomplishment of the European Union is interweaving the economies of Germany with France and other countries so there would not be a, a war between them in the future? Yes, uh, the integration process went on on several levels. Uh, it started in the 50s with uh, creating this community among six countries, France, Belgium, Netherlands, Italy, uh, and Germany, in order to um, regulate the market for steel and coal. And later on, it developed into a free trade zone, into a common market on an ever higher level of integration. And all these together brought us to the high level. The European Union today is actually working and existing and um, we shall keep this really in mind. It was never meant to be, right from the beginning, a very full political union and institution. It just came into this position while developing over the post-war decades. So after the war, with the heritage of Europe almost destroying itself twice in, in one lifetime, in yeah. World War One and World War Two, we had this movement for integration and free trade. And the European exactly. Union, not designed to get rid of the country of France or Germany, yeah. but to integrate, to, to enjoy free trade, but yeah. also to integrate yeah. so there won't be another war. Yeah. And that is something to celebrate. Yeah. And Thomas, when you fly home after your visit to the United States and settle back into the Rhine River Valley uh, in your homeland, what are your anxieties about the next year and, and what, are your, what are your hopes? How do you feel? The hopes are, first of all, that uh, Europe stays a peaceful community, 
whether it's on the integration level of monetary union or whether some countries might have to leave this monetary union but are still members of the European Union. That's something we should not forget. Together with this, a hope for uh, job stability, especially in southern European countries where especially the youth are really, really in a bad situation mm -hmm. with high unemployment rates, uh, over 20, 30% in some countries. And because the youth is our future, If uh, we don't get the youth to the point that they themselves uh, get more involved in political decision-making again, as well as if you don't get it done, uh, that we provide them with jobs and therefore an income, then we are actually creating a situation which is in favor of radicalism, nationalism, and both we don't want to see in Europe again. Wow, radicalism and nationalism. So you need to find a way to provide jobs and engage the young people, yeah. especially in Southern Europe. Especially in Southern Europe, but uh, all over Europe. And there is that specter all of radicalism and nationalism. And, we uh, see this, especially now during the financial crisis. Parties crisis. And so on, yeah. yes. We see this, and in, in Germany, for instance, with neo-nazism, Neo-Nazis, uh, yeah, uh, racist and, parties, yeah. being angry at immigrants. And what is even boosting and uh, giving them a go, these parties and movements, uh, wherever the government, even, and we see this in some areas in Germany today, wherever the government is withdrawing from social tasks, from social system, from social infrastructure right. is uh, going down, uh, these radicalists jump in. We see this today. You have these uh, nice uh, uh, neo-Nazi living in the neighborhood, As long as the government is doing the social jobs and it's taking care of the social infrastructure and security, uh, nothing happens. But once they don't spend the money, the public funding, then we see these groups jumping in. We can see that in history. You can see yep. that with the rise and fall of Nazism and in coincidence yep. with the Depression. Yep. Hitler was uh, getting popular with the chaos after World War One, And yep. then with the good times, yep. the cabaret era, he fell out of sight. Yep. And then with the Depression, he came back in because yep. the government wasn't able to, in part, handle the needs, the social yep. needs of the people. And we can see that today with radical groups, Nazi groups, far right-wing fascist groups or whatever yep. around Europe. I think we can see a bit of that in the United States, too. This is something we can learn from. Yep. Good luck, Thomas, and thank you for sharing an insight from your perspective in Germany, in the European Union. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure. keeping our focus on Germany as playwright Peter Voitzman explains how an American Jew can fall in love with Berlin and even make it his second home. We're doing a ghost dance in Berlin, just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. When Peter Voitzman first went to Berlin as a student back in the 1970s, he immediately fell in love with the city. As the son of German-speaking Jewish refugees from Vienna, he's found that Berlin's constantly evolving energy can stimulate a whole range of emotions. And making Berlin his second home has required Peter to grapple with some powerful ghosts from its past. Peter is an accomplished playwright, author, and translator. The Bloomsbury Review called him a 20th century Brother Grimm. He's just written a masterful poetic account of Berlin and his experiences in its haunted streets and buildings. The book's called Ghost Dance in Berlin, A Rhapsody in Grey. Peter Wortzman joins us right now to tell us about it on Travel with Rick Steves. Peter, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Rick. I'm really uh, delighted and honored to be on your show. Thank you. Now, tell us just briefly about your experience over the years in Berlin. When have you lived and why were you there and, and how did it inspire you to write your book? Well, I should say for me, Berlin is loaded, is and always will be loaded, but is and always will be really alive. I first experienced Berlin as a Fulbright scholar in 73. I remember telling the Fulbright Commission that this was a very difficult year for me. Um, I was actually based in Freiburg in the Black Forest at the time, and we regrouped in Berlin. And I remember arriving in Berlin and immediately falling in love with the energy of the city. At that time, there were two Berlins. There was the West Berlin and East Berlin. And this was a city that was really alive, This was a city 
where I suspected at the time, and now I'm convinced that the wild creative energy of the 1920s is still alive there, and that Joseph Goebbels, the time Gauleiter of Berlin under Hitler, did not succeed in ridding the city of this anarchic spirit. The subtitle of your book, Ghost Dance of Berlin, is A Rhapsody in Grey. And then you write, the city is cold, unblinking, littered, sad with memorials. Uh, at the same time, it's a city that seems to give you energy. I think what's, what's amazing about this place is, in its very grayness, it is one of the most joyous places that I've ever been to. Perhaps it's a longing for the sunny south. The sun doesn't show through until well into April. If you arrive, as I did on January 1st, on my last day, 2010, you don't see the sun. You It blinks at you, but you never see it. And yet there's something about this place, perhaps uh, people turned inwards, uh, the warmth of a cafe, the, the, the introverted nature, the, the bookishness, the raucous nature of this place, there's something unbelievably attractive about it. Now, you've written this incredible fantasy kind of story, the premise of your book. You've got ghosts that go back and forth from a, a present-day perch on a lakeside mansion, and you, you imagine these sets of ghosts, and one of them is uh, the exiled Jewish banker family that owned this mansion, and the other is uh, Hitler's minister of finance and his entourage that took over the mansion. And then you've got another gaggle of ghosts that look across the lake as they plan the final solution, the extermination of the Jewish race. And then you've got your characters jumping back and forth over what was the wall. Talk about how that helps you explain how you find Berlin so fascinating. 2010 was the coldest winter in the last three decades. And so I actually, in what I think of as a great Semitic tradition, walked on water. I took some ginger steps at first, and then I saw a hockey team skating across the lake. And I walked out into the middle of this mythic, infamous lake, Wannsee. Maybe many of your listeners have heard of the Wannsee Conference. This was one of the most horrible conferences in history where they decided upon how to uh, efficiently organize the mass extermination of a people. That's happening on one side. That's right next to the Lieberman Villa, Villa of Max Lieberman, a Jewish Impressionist painter who revolutionized painting in Berlin and then was turned out of the very academy that he had founded. The villa that I lived in was owned originally by the Arnholt family. The Arnholt uh, family were Jewish bankers, originally bankers to Bismarck. This gets into the very paradox of, of Berlin life. Bismarck was an anti-Semite who, of course, had to have a Jewish banker to uh, finance his uh, growing um, imperial uh, needs and desires. The Arnhold family fled, and Hitler gave the house to Walter Funk, his minister of finance. And I, in my insomniac imagination, when one has insomnia, everything becomes metaphor in a way, I heard the rustling of ghosts around me. I speak in part metaphorically and poetically. I tried to imagine what these two presences, how could they could deal with each other, the presence of the Arnhold family and their guests. It was a villa in which there was a kind of artistic and literary salon, a salon reaching back to the 19th century, these great salons of Rachel Varnhagen. Rachel Varnhagen was a converted Jewish woman in whose salons the artistic and literary elite of Berlin, of Germany, gathered together, and who, several years later, decided, uh, this is after Napoleon's invasion, decided that they would no longer eat at table with their former hosts, and they founded the Deutsche Tischgesellschaft, at which uh, Jews were excluded. But Berlin has always been, I don't know if melting pot is the right word, this giant uh, oozing bratwurst of a place in which, somewhat like the native Vienna of my parents, was a place, certainly in the 20th century, where you cannot extract the Jewish element from cultural life of this place. You wrote in your book, uh, to this day I often feel like one of those plump, round, hand-painted Russian wooden Matryoshka dolls with a German embedded in my English, Yiddish inside the German, Hebrew pulsing in the Yiddish, and the universal cry of a newborn echoing within. It's like you're wrestling with your identity in a city that's wrestling with its own identity. And then I picture you standing on this frozen Wannsee 
Is that where the idea of writing this book came to you, actually, when you're standing on that frozen lake, looking at the mansion, and looking over where the conference was being held that, that was scheming the extermination of your race? This was certainly where one of the ideas came from. There was something about Berlin. I can't describe the energy. I was happy to be alive. Now, is that in contrast to so much death around me? I don't know. I felt joyous. I can't explain it. I shot up out of sleep at dawn. I walked several blocks to the grave of the poet Heinrich von Kleist. I'm also a translator from the German, and I translated Kleist. And I communed with Kleist and asked if he wouldn't mind if I would borrow a couple of impressions from my stay. And every day I had new, vivid impressions that I had to communicate. And the book started in emails to my brother and sister that became fleshed out, and I, I just couldn't stop. I couldn't stop feeling happy. It's a little bit like that wonderful scene in A Christmas Carol where Alistair Stim starts dancing the day after he wakes up to find that he's still alive. And he, he says, I don't know if you remember his jig, I don't know anything, I know I don't know anything. And there's this, this joyousness. I felt it every day waking up in the city of Berlin. Peter Wurtzman's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves as he explains what it's like to be a Jew who loves the energy of Berlin. You'll find Peter's essays in the Best American Travel Writing Series. He's authored Urban Nomad, e-books about Paris and Vienna, plus poetry and short story collections, and he's translated a number of works of classic German literature into English. He's also written a play called Burning Words, and his latest book is called Ghost Dance in Berlin. You're of a Jewish-Austrian family. Both parents, yeah. I grew up speaking German as a first language. Now, this is the capital of Hitler and Nazism, and, and your book reads like kind of like a love story of Berlin. How can a Jew love Berlin? Well, first of all, I've always pursued ambivalence in my life. When I was growing up as a child, my parents were criticized by other family members for keeping the German language alive. And my mother's response was to stop speaking German would be to cut their own tongue out of their mouths. There's been a Jewish presence in German lands along the Rhine ever since the Roman army first got there. It is a part of the history of the country. It is a part, for better and for worse, of the 20th century. And for me, on top of that, Berlin is this immensely creative city. It, it oozes art. It, it, it oozes creativity everywhere, which way you go. Everybody's got a story to tell. There is this anarchic spirit. The city's bankrupt. You never know how, how it works the ice is not cleaned in the winter time, which is a problem because the whole city is like an open skating rink. But somehow you just love it. You mm. love the people that you meet. You love the bratwurst that you eat on uh, Alexanderplatz. You love all the, the oozing fat of these pork dishes, which for me is the, the great taboo. And my father, being a very assimilated Jew from Austria, taught me everything that I was not allowed to eat and the pleasure of eating everything that I was not allowed to eat. What is it about the German fondness of, of the flesh of the pig and then the Jewish abhorrence of it, and then how people like your Jewish-German father having to have that forbidden flesh even if it's not okay? I think the pig is a totem. Uh, it's the image that you see almost everywhere when you walk around Berlin, and it's the image, of course, for me of the forbidden fruit, forbidden flesh, that uh, my father taught me what you must not eat, and then turned it around and said, the pleasure of learning to eat what you must not eat. He would take us to a deli on a Saturday or a Sunday, Shalon Weber in New York, which was a sort of racy experience, a little bit like taking your sons to the culinary brothel. Uh, my mother <laughs> knew about it, but uh, shut her eyes. There was no pork allowed in the house. But uh, my father lusted after this meat. Ham way... Oh, Eisbein. Eisbein, yeah. Thing. You see it on every menu in Berlin, Eisbein. It's a mythic dish, the but forbidden nobody dish. dares order it. <laughs> no Americans <laughs> dare order it. My father, he's not alive anymore, but I, I called out to him and asked my late mother's forgiveness, too, for waxing ecstatic and lyrical about this dish on a plate, which is an almost Neanderthal dish. You, you feel like a caveman attacking this piece of flesh, and it's, it's wonderful with a mug of beer. And, Peter, when you write about the bread, even, you write, nobody knows how to bake whole grain bread like the Germans. 
It tastes like it just came out of the oven of Hansel and Gretel. You, you clearly have an affinity for German culture, even though your family was victimized by the Nazis. Is that not a struggle for you? Oh, it's a constant struggle. To my mind, it's the basic struggle of my life. Needless to say, the oven in Hansel Gretel is an ambivalent image. That oven was not only used for cooking bread, the witch intended to cook children in it. And then you talk about present-day Berlin's struggle against neo-Nazis and the graffiti you see in Prince Lauenberg, where it says Berlin against Nazis and so on. I split my time between a villa on the Wannsee. There were no extra accommodations for my family who came with me to Berlin. So we sublet a, an apartment in Prenzlauer back. And I was deeply moved in Prenzlauer back because on May 1st, the traditional workers' holiday, neo-Nazis decided that they were going to march on Prenzlauer back. It was going to be a statement. Well, they never got anywhere because I joined the barricades of 2,500 of my neighbors who literally blocked the Nazis from taking steps into our terrain. And I felt deeply moved, and I felt one of them. I mean, the, the young people on the barricades were moved to see what they called an old-timer. I didn't quite like looking at myself as an old-timer. And then when they found out that I was a foreigner to boot, I mean, they were moved. We, we hugged each other. I mean, it was it's a great city. And I am convinced that there was a cultural marriage between two peoples. It was a stormy marriage. It was a rough marriage. It was a dramatic marriage, which gave certainly the 20th century some of the best that it's ever seen and definitely some of the worst. But I firmly believe that Germans, at least of my generation, and I'm 60 now, Germans and Jews are both children of that cultural marriage that ended in a terrible divorce, mm. and that, in fact, we have a great deal to say to each other. We have a great deal in common, much more in common than we think. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Peter Wurzman. Peter writes a book, Ghost Dance in Berlin, a Rhapsody in Grey. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Charles is on the line from Naperville, Illinois. Charles, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. Hey, Peter. I uh, want to tell you, it's sort of funny, I'm, I'm listening to you speak, and um, I too studied in Freiburg and Breisgau in southern Germany when I was in college in, in 91, and I, I was lucky enough, I went on my own, which mostly I went with my friends, but uh, one weekend I went all by myself, all the way to Berlin, I did, took the all-night train, and had a wonderful time spending about 48 hours really hardcore hitting Berlin, and uh, I just loved it, I thought it was a great city, and I really exhausted myself, but I had great fun. But one of the one of the coolest things I did, I, I was a history major and a, and a German double major. Before I went, I, I xeroxed all these pictures from books of when the Russians were were storming Berlin, and I had these xeroxes. And when I was in Berlin, I, I, I took some time and found where the the pictures were actually taken, and and it was so chilling to see like there were still bullet holes in some of the columns, and, and to stand where soldiers were standing, where all this history took place, and I just. I was wondering if that if that's still there, or is that through all the rebirth of Berlin through the 90s, and now has that all been washed away, or is that still there when if you go back? One of my favorite little places in Germany is on top of the Reichstag building, and if you know where to stand and look, you can see bullet holes from there from the very last days of World War II. If you can imagine a country being invaded from both sides and the defenders finish their fighting on the rooftop, literally, of their parliament building, that's what happened with the, the Nazis on the last day of the war is the Americans were pushing in from the west and the Russians came in from the east and the last stand was literally on top of the Reichstag. And when you look at it today, that modern architectural type of the Reichstag, it looks a little bit like a prescient eye looking out into the future and onto the past. Oh, what a stirring building. That's that new glass dome that has been fitted yes. onto the bombed-out hulk of the previous Reichstag that was left as a memorial uh, throughout the Cold War, right on the no-man's land of the Berlin Wall. Now, now, when I went, they were still building that, but I would love to go back. Is it hard to get a tour of, you know, walk that big circle cavalcade? No, it's, it's very easy. You, 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 you just you, have to stand on line. You stand in line, you walk the ramp all the way to the very top and look down over the shoulders of the German legislators uh, from the very top of the dome of their new Capitol building. It's all about living history, Berlin. That's for sure. Thanks, Charles. All right, thank you. We're talking with Peter Wurzman. His book is Ghost Dance in Berlin. Peter, you talk about, you know, these ghosts that are jumping back and forth and the frozen von Sea and everything and and the wall dividing the city. And in a way, you also talk about the wall surviving metaphorically today. 
In fact, you talk about driving around town with a taxi who told you that the wall survives, but in money, not in stone. Uh, how does the wall survive today in your mind? Certainly, if you've been in Berlin long enough and you are of my age, 60, you can quickly pick up who's an Ussie and who's a Wessie, who's an Easterner, who's a Westerner. You just sense it. Mm -hmm. That difference has disappeared in subsequent generations. My children were there with me, mm -hmm. and they didn't feel it at all. Okay, but people who spent their youth under communism, you're saying you can tell it today. Yes, but, mm -hmm. you know, there's communism, but I don't want to whitewash it, but there was also a social protective network that certainly the West didn't offer. Yeah. There, are, there are two sides to it. It's a very complex place full of complete contradictions. Oh, yeah, and that's the exciting thing to struggle with it as a tourist and as a writer and a historian like you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Peter Wurtzman in his book Ghost Dance in Berlin. Peter, are the ghosts still there? Oh, yes, they're still there. Perhaps most moving to me about the city of Berlin is something called Stolpersteine. Stolpersteine are these brass plaques that you are deliberately meant to stumble on, that is, the pedestrian is. They're polished brass plaques on which there are the names and dates of deportation of individuals who lived in each house. I find myself always perennially moved by this. I, find I have to pause and imagine who was here and whose ghost is still hovering here. Peter Wurtzman, Ghost Dance in Berlin, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to our friends at the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help today. There's more online at ricksteves.com. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Germany, Austria and Switzerland, Berlin, Prague and Vienna, and the heart of Belgium and Holland. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.